Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. I've broken the gavel at the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's program. I'm Melissa Kane. I'm a journalist and a lawyer and your moderator for today's program. Uh, I am pleased to introduce today's speaker. I'm a personal fan. I was really, really thrilled to get the opportunity to be here to speak to our guest. He's a leading innovator and respected commentator in national conservative thought circles. He joined the National Review in 1992 and was hand-selected by William F. Buckley Jr. to lead the magazine in 1998. He's been a frequent guest on Fox News and is the author of best-selling books, uh, One Legacy, Paying the Price for the Clinton Years, and two, Lincoln Unbound. In Mr. Lowry's new book, The Case for Nationalism, he argues that nationalism is not a dirty word and refutes criticism from the left and the right that nationalism means fascism, militancy, and racism. He writes that nationalism means self-realization and identity and is integral to America's success. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Rich Lowry. Thank you so much, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. And I see some friendly faces from fellow conservatives who must feel very embattled here and. uh San Francisco. I know how that is. I'm a very conservative guy who lives and works in New York City. And just to give you an idea of my uh, political existence in New York City, because I'm an incorrigible conservative in the uh, 2016 primaries, Republican primaries in New York City, I voted for Ted Cruz. And my wife did as well. And the New York Times has this uh, amazing feature where you can look the next day and they have a precinct by precinct breakdown of uh, the vote. And I looked at our precinct. And I was like, wow, we were 20 percent of the cruise vote in our precinct <laughs> and do the math. And then there was this uh, this precinct just south of us uh, where there was one cruise vote. And I was like, I know that guy, you know, he goes to my church. Um, but anyway, it did not end well for for Ted Cruz in, in New York or, or anywhere else. But uh, it's a pleasure being here today. And just by way of introduction, I'll make five points quickly about nationalism and the kind of nationalism I uh, defend in my book. And I hope uh, if I don't convince all of you that that I at least convince you that it's something you should think about uh, more. And I look forward to uh, the discussion. So um, first of all, just definitions. So a lot of people, um, they like the word patriotism and they presume that the word patriotism should stand for everything good and national feeling and nationalism is everything bad. I think this is a a poor and unsustainable definition. If you want to get technical about it, patriotism goes back to the the root. The root word of patriotism is from Latin. It's patre. It's the same root as patriarchy. Related meanings, father, fatherland. It's loyalty to your own. Nationalism is something more specific. Nationalism is the doctrine or the idea that a distinct people united by common culture and a common history should govern a distinct territory. That's nationalism. So my five points quickly. One, I contend that nationalism, or at least national feeling, is a very old phenomenon. It's a very natural phenomenon. It's a very powerful phenomenon. And empires and totalitarian ideologies throughout the centuries have tried to wipe it out, always on 
successfully. And just to give you an indication of, of the power of this force, let's consider briefly uh, one of history's great monsters, Joan of Arc. Okay, Joan of Arc, uh, 1425 or so, has a vision in her father's garden from uh, 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 St. Michael, an angel, uh, that she should free, liberate her country from the English. Uh, the English kings at that time, they'd come over from France, from Normandy. They had an idea they should govern not just England, but France. Uh, this precipitates the Hundred Years' War, which is a catastrophic uh, event, um, certainly for the French. The population is reduced by about half, famine, combat, uh, you name it. And when Joan is born, her country has been under occupation for about, uh, and under occupation in a civil war for about 75 years. And she's 14 years old when she has uh, this vision. And somehow, astonishingly, through force of will, she convinces uh, French authorities that she should be allowed to join uh, their, their forces to fight the English. And famously, uh, she is uh, stationed outside this English-occupied city, Orleans, and she sends the uh, English troops, you know, these, these I'm sure, hard-bitten guys, a message saying, I'm a captain of war. I'm going to chase you one and all uh, from, from our land, from France. And if you don't go, I'm going to kill you. This is just fair warning, right? And they take this about as seriously as you would expect. Uh, she sends some more messages. She finally fires over on an arrow, a last message saying, this is my last warning and there'll be no more communication. And the English yell across the ramparts, you know, scorning her and laughing at her and say, oh, more news from the the horror of the French Aramaics. And Joan does what you would expect any normal teenage girl to do when insulted. She cries tears of outrage. And then she does what no teenage girl has ever done in world history. Uh, she mounts a white horse. She leads the French troops into battle, carrying a 12-foot white banner with an image of Christ sitting in judgment and indeed ch chases the English from the city of Orleans. And amazingly enough, she, as she promised she would do, restores the uh, French line to the French throne. Now, she's betrayed the, uh, by um, French ally to the English. They try her. The It's not a fair process, as you might imagine. The whole thing is uh, geared to um, executing her, which they do. They, uh, they burn her at the stake. She declares the name of, of Christ as she's burning, and they uh, spread her ashes in the Seine River. She's 19 years old. And the whole point is to salt away any memory of Joan and her cause. And of course, the opposite happens because she's become a symbol of her nation and as such is extremely powerful and will never be wiped away. When uh, France, centuries later, is occupied by a, a much more horrid um, foreign army, the Germans, the Free French, what do they do? They use the symbol of Joan, Joan of Arc, the Cross of Lorraine. They paint it on their airplanes. They paint it on their ships. When Charles de Gaulle himself, a great vindicator of the French nation and symbol of the French nation, dies, his hometown erects a 60-foot-tall Cross of Lorraine to mark him uh, in, in the village. That is nationalism in a nutshell. That is national feeling. That's why it never goes away. Second point, I argue that nationalism is part of the mainstream of the American tradition. You don't get American Revolution without it. You don't get uh, uh, the ratification of the Constitution without it. You don't get victory in the Civil War without it. It's a tradition that runs through Hamilton. He's really the taproot of it, through Lincoln, through TR, and on into the 20th century. 
into FDR and Reagan, and that both of those figures have access to nationalistic sentiment and symbols and feeling is a sign that it is a fairly plastic force, and it's a force that can be abused. Um, It's also a force that both parties and people of different ideologies have access to if they want it. Um, Third, it's a major contention in my book that America is not just an idea, as we very often uh, hear. One of my axioms in political life is there's something that everyone agrees on and that people of both sides say it's probably wrong. So if uh, Joe Biden and Lindsey Graham can both say this with great confidence, there's a reason to at least be a little dubious about it. And I think this is an overly ethereal and abstract understanding of America. No one lives in an idea. Even philosophers don't live in an idea. You ask anyone, where are you from? No a rational person says, oh, I'm glad you asked. I live in Locke's Second Treaties, Chapter 4, Book 5, right? That is not the case. Now, a version, a more sophisticated version of this is the idea that Amer- in America we have a civic nationalism, which is largely true based around uh, common um, citizenship. But that's, that's not all that we are. Uh, nations are thicker than that. Individuals are thicker than that. And uh, our culture is extremely important. And an example I use, hypothetical for Uh, to make this point, is if tonight in Paris, if an African-American and a a white American meet on the steps of the Paris Opera House, they instantly have more in common than anyone around them because they share bonds of language. They dress largely the same. They like largely the same cuisine. They have an enormous stock of common knowledge. They are united in a very important sense, even if their politics and ideology is different, even if they're from completely different parts of the country. To give you another tourist example, if uh, also tonight, you know, in, in a Munich beer garden, um, if the Germans are think someone's an American, they don't look and say, that guy there, I can tell, he believes in the Declaration of Independence. They say, no, he's friendly, he's boisterous, maybe he's fat. That's an American, right? And these, these are important uh, aspects that make us Amer- Americans and that can't be uh, ignored or slighted. My fourth point, the culture has been really important to us from the very beginning. Um, John Winthrop and the Puritans come to Massachusetts Bay Colony like 1630, 1632, somewhere in there. And they, they took um, from England the charter that they had to govern themselves. There's a little loophole uh, in, in the charter that allowed them to take it with them, which usually you didn't uh, do, but they wanted to have this uh, document allowing them to govern themselves in their own possession, you know, as a, as a symbol and a function of uh, their relative independence. And now very quickly, they developed their own, you know, modes of religious worship, their own modes of government, and it's not to the liking of the King of England and people around him urged him to go and take the charter back, go and get it. And so Winthrop and others have to consider, what are we going to do if this happens? And they make the decision, if the king is going to do this, we will resist him by force of arms. Um, they, they put up cannons. They drill the militia. They put a beacon on a high point in Boston to alert everyone if the king is coming. That forever no- more is known as Beacon Hill and, in Boston. So it's just so extraordinary to me that 150 years before there is a revolt 
against the authority of the King of England, led uh, by Boston, by independent and stubborn-minded people in Boston, Massachusetts. There was almost a revolt against English royal authority led by stubborn, independent-minded people from Boston, Massachusetts. These cultural grooves are very deep and they're very long-running. Another part of our, our cultural inheritance uh, is the Bible. It gives us the notion that we're chosen, or as Abraham Lincoln um, said famously and perhaps more appropriately, an almost chosen people, gives us the idea uh, that we are living in a promised land, gives us the idea of the covenant. Now, um, in, in the Bible, it just becomes a, a incredibly rich store of literary and rhetorical tools. And Martin Luther King, a lot of people point out how he used the Declaration of Independence you know, rhetorically, the way Lincoln did, you know, um, MLK said the declaration is a promissory note that hasn't been cashed yet. But the main uh, avenue of his rhetoric, King, it comes from Amos, it comes from Jeremiah, it comes from Matthew, it comes from these deep stores of the Bible. This idea of the covenant, the first covenant we get in, in this country is the Mayflower Compact, but then as we settle uh, North America, kind of every little town and every new church is founded on the basis of a covenant, which is a written agreement. Again, the basic idea goes back to ancient Israel, and a covenant's interesting because it's, it's written and agreed upon, and it's, it creates obligations on you, but also creates limits on the sovereign power. You know, in the Bible, that's God. Um, in our case, it's government. And the most important covenant in our history, obviously, is the United States Constitution, which I don't believe we'd get, um, at least not so early, not the way it's formulated without this biblical notion of covenant. And this is the sheet anchor of American nationalism and American sovereignty. Uh, it's very important that we preserve it going forward. There's a, a scholar named Walter Burns who once was uh, at a conference in Brazil about constitutionalism, and someone uh, got up and objected to something he was saying. It's like, what does this guy know about constitutions, because the United States has just had one, but Brazil's had 15. So, you know, we're the experts. Um, and then finally, so my, my agenda, again, going back to the point I made about FDR and Reagan, nationalism is kind of a baseline thing. It doesn't necessarily dictate a lot of policy. It doesn't tell you what your tax rates are going to be. It doesn't necessarily tell you what your foreign policy is going to be. But I, I think uh, a consensus, uh, lowest common, common denominator, conservative version of nationalism would, would be about um, defending the core of our culture, which means defending the, the English language as the dominant language in this country. Language is just indispensable national cohesion. You look at Canada, nice, pleasant country, almost torn apart um, several decades ago because Quebec is a French-speaking province in the middle of this English-speaking country. You look at the contention in Spain right now or Catalonia, a lot of it has to go to the fact, goes to the fact that, that uh, people in Catalonia speak their own language and have their uh, own culture. It means defending our founders and our heroes. It means defending our civil symbols and rituals. I'm deeply offended by disrespect uh, for the American flag, which I, I think protest movements, the best protest movements, um, glom onto the flag and use the flag as their own symbol. They don't express any disrespect or hostility to it. And men died for that flag, not just in a metaphorical sense, but if you read about the Civil War in a literal 
sense. Not uh, the color sergeants would ho- hold the flag, you know, during battles to rally the troops and tell the troops where to go because it would be a confused melees filled uh, with smoke. And they took this obligation very seriously. Um, dozens and dozens of Medal of Honor winners from the Civil War were color sergeants right around the spot where Lincoln gives the Gettysburg Address. There are eight um, uh, color sergeants or, or people died defending the flag. Battle of Fredericksburg, there's a color sergeant who's wounded, hands the flag over to another color sergeant who's wounded, hands it over to someone else who goes and takes it to uh, a grievously, fatally wounded officer so he can be wrapped around it as he dies. And <clears throat> this is what the flag means. It's an inherently a very emotional symbol. And then finally, I think we need to teach a truthful vision, a version of our history, which means we acknowledge the sins, but we do not just tell our history as an unrelieved tale of woe and repression. We tell it uh, as the glorious story of a free people living in a blessed land. So that's my basic take. Thank you. So, uh, so your book is called The Case for Nationalism, of course. Um, why? Let's start at the beginning. Why do you think that there needs to be a case made for nationalism? What is it that you are addressing with this book? Yeah, so one, it's the, the misunderstanding of the word and the concept, which I think is very basic and key. And two, it's uh, that I think the, the sense of America is not just an idea— are not just a set of ideals, which are, are obviously extremely important, but as a distinct bounded entity, that that's very important. And that's a notion that we shouldn't lose sight of. Well, I just mean, do you believe that nationalism is is under attack? Do you believe that, um, you know, that that you need to sort of get in there and, and make make a good case for that? Reason? Yeah, and I think it, it clearly um, is a, certainly um, we don't have a threat to our sovereignty on par with what European countries do um, from the European Union. And I see the European Union as a version of a very old – I've talked about how nationalism and national feeling are old. Imperialism is very old and kind of an imperial um, vision certainly in Europe is very old. And I see the EU uh, a vision, as a vision of a unified European-wide government that – runs through the Roman Empire, runs through Charlemagne, runs through Napoleon, runs through Hitler, runs through the EU. Now, the EU, obviously, much more mild and benign uh, version of of that phenomenon. But to me, it's just outrageous that uh, England, one of the, the glories of self-government um, in world history, should have any significant um, part of its autonomy and governing decision-making authority transferred to Brussels rather than Westminster. Um, so I, I do think because people assume that nationalism is nasty because they assume it's small-minded or somehow bigoted, um, that uh, the, the nation-state is under pressure, um, certainly in Europe. Well, and if you when you define nationalism, I think it's hard to do without talking about what it's not. Yeah. You know, and it, even even in your examples, you're giving examples of um, Americans and other countries. And sort of so you're kind of defined by what's around you and, and what you're not. Um, and I think for some folks, that's the problem with nationalism is that it's by its nature drawing a line, however you want to draw it. But you're drawing a line saying this is us uh, and this is what we believe in and this is our, sort of our territory. Right. Um, how do you... 
create a situation where you can make people feel included, even if they don't, for example, speak English, um, when you're, you know, sort of talking about the importance of it? Yeah, so that's a great question. So yes, it, it is inherently bounded and then sort of is exclusive in that sense. But whatever your unit of governing authority is, it's going to have some sort of bounds. Even an empire has a bound. Um, it doesn't, there's, there's no such thing as world government. There's never been any such thing uh, as world government. And the problem with empires is that you, someone has to rule and who speaks a certain kind of language, who comes from a certain constituent nation within the empire. And just the history is all the other nations caught up in the empire, they don't like this being governed by someone else. And that's why, you know, an, an empire like the Habsburg Empire, which occupied an enormous amount of central Europe, it had a pretty good run. You know, 600 years is, is a long time, but it was known as the prison house of nations for a reason. Um, it's because the, the, there's constant discontent among the constituent parts of the Habsburg Empire. And the history of empires, um, these traditional big empires like Ottoman, Habsburg, Russian, um, colonial empires, British, French, and the, the Soviet Union, I'd throw in as well. Once the coercive apparatus really gives way and you're not keeping a boot on the neck of the peoples who make up your empire – the peoples go their own way. They, they want to govern themselves. They feel a, a more in, inherent connection to the people that they share a culture and um, a history and a language with. And I just think um, the, the nation and the nation state is the most natural uh, political entity and political division. And I don't think it's an accident that two things have happened with the rise of the nation state in the modern era. One, we've seen the rise of democracy because uh, the empires were never um, democracies because I said someone has to rule someone else. When you get a nation state and a sense of common feeling and social cohesion, that's when you can have a sense of, of equal citizenship. That's when you can have a social trust that lubricates um, not just democratic governance, but a market economy. Um, and uh, also, in the last 50 years, when the nation state has been recognized in large part because of American foreign policy is based around supporting sovereign nation states, you've had relative to the rest of world history, uh, a great time of peace. And this is because it's become a violation of international norms to in invade another country and uh, take expropriate its territory and change its borders. Now that borders have a, a sort of sacrosanct, except for in some fringe cases, sacrosanct status in our international system, you have more peace than you had prior. Well, so one of the things you talk about in the book is is how land is important. We, we've got the cultural element, but there's also a, like a physical one. And uh, we love to hear about ourselves. So uh, you do talk about California and and its importance to uh, to Americans' concept of, of nationalism. Um, could you talk a little bit about that for our Californians? Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think it's really important. The territorial extent of the country is really important. And it's part of ident our identity. It was really a, a consensus of everyone on the American uh, scene that we weren't just going to stay huddled across the eastern seaboard. Uh, along the eastern seaboard, we are going to um, move west. Now, there's obviously this involves one of our great national sins, which is the way we uh, treated um, native 
peoples, which was very often duplicitous, cruel, and is a stain on our national um, honor. But as a practical matter, I think even if we had stayed huddled on the eastern seaboard, someone else would have ended up occupying California, the rest of the country, and uh, pushing Native peoples aside. So the argument I make, even though this is um, um, a, a story chapter in our history, we wouldn't actually be better off if Mexico had taken all the territory or Canada had taken all of it or one of the European powers, the Spaniards, the British, um, the French. And one of the um, contributing factors to our expansion was fear of having foreign powers on our periphery and the worry that if they were there, they'd work to pull our country apart and destroy um, our unity. And the fact that we are a constitutional nation, continental, continental nation, is one of the reasons that we were able to have such a big influence in the, the 20th century, uh, helping win two world wars that, that were very important to win and helping to create this new inter international system that has uh, more respect than ever before for the, the claims and, and the rights of, of various peoples around the world. Well, you know, one of the things that was in your book that I, I didn't know before was that uh, you wrote that Andrew Jackson at one point dispatched his secretary of state to uh, to look into purchasing San, San Francisco for about, what, five million dollars, <laughs> which would get you maybe a two bedroom these days. But uh, which I thought, oh, well, that, I had no idea that there was already there were already those kind of designs on was, the West. It, it was immediate. You know, I, there are quotes from the 1810s from from people saying we need California. Uh, now, uh, better or worse, <laughs> we've got a question about this, and it's something I, I had on my list to ask you about as well. Are we, to some degree, a victim of our own success? I mean, if nationalism is somehow defined sometimes by what it's not, um, then does the absence is does the absence of um, a global competitor uh, somehow sort of make us tear ourselves apart? You know, we there is a need to have this definition. And for some people, I think at certain ages, there's a need to find a fight. And so uh, if there isn't one out there, maybe we bring it here. I don't know. I mean, is it is this something we, we've sort of um, so successfully become, yeah. become uh, you know, a, a leading nation that, that now it's, it, it causes problems for our, our sense of nationalism? Yeah, so I would say a, a couple things um, have happened. One kind of a cosmopolitan attitude used to be an attitude associated with critics of society and outsiders and philosophers, a Diogenes, you know, in ancient Greece, uh, who's the first person there's any record of saying, I'm a citizen of the world, you know, lived in a, a barrel in the marketplace um, in, in Athens, I guess it was, to out, out, outrage, you know, the bourgeoisie of the time. And it was a statement that, that uh, was meaningless because, I mean, you're the, the meaning of individuals at the time was just caught up in their polis almost entirely. I still think saying I'm a citizen of the world is a meaningless statement um, today. And uh, if, if you get in a jam around the world, you're kidnapped by pirates or something, the world doesn't come and save you. Your country comes and saves you because your country cares about you more than anyone else does. And there's no such thing as a universal nation, a universal military, or a universal language. I think another change that's happened is – Business and technological innovations, the late great social scientist Samuel Huntington pointed this out. In the 19th century, they created a new kind of sense of national loyalty going along with the national market that hadn't existed before and sort of trumped old local affiliations and local loyalties 
And I think in the late 20th and now in the 21st century, you have those business and technological innovations um, creating more of a transnational orientation among a certain um, segment of, of people and a certain segment of the elite and a certain segment of uh, business people. So I think that's uh, been a factor. And then there's just been the general sense that um, uh, nations are retrograde, they're archaic, and somehow we're going to move beyond them. And I think that's that's an illusion as well. I've got a couple of questions here. I'm going to, uh, they're similar, but I'll just read one of them um, because you do talk about this in the book a bit, um, immigration. And so the question here is, uh, if you say the U.S. is a nation, not an idea, what are the implications of that argument on government, especially pertaining to immigration? And there, again, there's some other questions about immigration, but if you could talk about that. Yeah. So I pay a lot of attention on it, to immigration policy in the book. So I, I do think it's key to this question. And um, I just think that the notion that we're a nation of immigrants, obviously, we've had a lot of immigration in, in our history, is meant as a conversation stopper. It's, it's meant to say we should not think about this policy and what's best for uh, our national interest. And that's, uh, to me, that's completely wrong. And again, the baseline of nationalism for me is our, our foreign policy, our immigration policy, our trade policy. The first consideration should be what's best for us, for um, citizens and legal immigrants already here? What's in our national interest? And there can be all sorts of answers, policy answers to this question. I mean, that's a big that's a big policy debate. But this is kind of a, a baseline um, uh, nationalism. And on immigration policy, I just think um, we're at, at very high levels, uh, have been for um, a long time, and we have not crafted thoughtfully a policy that best serves our interests, which for me would would look a lot like what Canada does, what Australia does. You put an emphasis on um, skills rather than family um, unification. And people point a lot to high levels in the early 20th century and said, well, that turned out fine. So why can't we have high levels forevermore? But there is a, a incredible machinery and apparatus of assimilation at the time. Uh, in the early 20th century, there were two world wars, which were also incredible pressure cookers of assimilation. And then, you know, partly because we passed an immigration law that was not very well intended in 1924, but we we reduced levels. So instead of constantly reinforcing ethnic enclaves, say Italian-American ethnic enclaves, you reduced them, which created outmarriage. Um, you know, Italian, Italian-American son of immigrants marrying someone else from a, another um, national group that had come here. And then you kind of blend everyone into being an uh, American. So I would emphasize skills. I'd lower uh, numbers and I'd uh, put a heavy emphasis on assimilation. And the, the hope this, this is really the the hope and the allure of nationalism is National national loyalty should be a loyalty above sect, above tribe, above uh, race, above a partisanship. It's not small minded or hateful. It should be ab above that. And it should be uh, focused on reducing those sort of divisions, which if they are emphasized enough um, for long enough, I, I think will uh, erode our institutions and eventually destroy the country. What? <laughs> Destroy the country. Yeah, I think if you have a real emphasis on identity politics and tribal, subnational 
loyalties that it will um, break down our institutions over time. And um, eventually we won't won't be the country that we imagine ourselves are, uh, that we are, and even our ideals won't survive that. So there has to be a loyalty uh, above those things. And rather than nationalism being um, grubby and small-minded, it is, it is elevated when it's properly understood. That should be the loyalty of everyone. Oh, so the answer to the way to sort of fix that or prevent the end of the nation uh, is to... I really got your attention. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, that's a really... Boy, oh boy. Uh, that's... A... Well, because you don't actually get, you know, you don't, at least in the version I have, you don't get there in the book really to sort of what are the implications um, necessarily. So um, uh, I'm interested in your prescriptions for what we can do to um, to get to get past some of those or to get above maybe some of those kind of loyalties. What sort of things, I mean, I'm, I, you guys are probably also face the same thing where you're just sort of baffled at um, civics education and how little uh, people know about the branches of government, some people in government. Um, and so uh, it's, it, I just mean, it's, it seems like there are a lot of places where you could jump in and maybe uh, buttress people's understanding of where we are and where we've been. Yeah, I mean, you need, it's really important to have a common story and a common memory. And as I said briefly in my opening remarks, it should be a truthful history. And conservatives have fallen down on this because we've wanted to sugarcoat um, a lot of things. But I think folks on the left uh, have fallen down as well. And to me, um, the New York Times 1619 project, which I think everyone is familiar with, that has wanted to put more an emphasis on slavery and the history of our country, there are aspects of this that are really good. I mean, it's clearly part of the story and something that everyone should know more about. And something that's certainly true, and that was in the lead essay of the 1619 Project, um, the, the woman who wrote it, uh, this very moving vignette where she talked about um, being a little girl in school and having an African-American friend and the teacher in it innocently meant exercise uh, asked everyone, all the kids, to point out on the globe, you know, what, what country did your family come from? And she and her friend, they didn't know because they had a lineage in this country going so far back. And the fact is the average African-American whose family hasn't come here in t recent decades, last two or three uh, decades or so, has a lineage in this country much further back than any of the neo-Nazi marchers in, in Charlottesville. The emphasis on African-American is American. And um, I, I think that's something that um, conservatives should never uh, forget. And, and we should do a, a lot to heal what, what's a tragic breach between African-American voters and the Republican Party and uh, the conservative cause. The problem I have with the 1619 Project is I, I think that the dishonesties that tell us a distorted version um, of our own uh, story. And th this is something that's kind of unprecedented in human history and I think characterizes our education system generally now. The usual reflex is, well, I'm going to tell a lie about the other country. You know, I'm French. I'm going to tell lies about the Germans. Not that you have to tell a lot of lies to the Germans to make them look bad, but uh, yeah, I'm going to drag them down, uh, not ourselves. But we have an attitude in this country of dragging ourselves down. And to say, as a 1619 uh, project did, that the American Revolution was all about protecting slavery is false. It's just completely false. To ignore that in 17, beginning in 1776, there was an opening 
um, in this country on uh, slavery and the issues of race where um, basically all the northern states in, in a fairly short period of time embraced gradual abolition. And there was an opening, even a loosening of the slave system in the South at that time, exactly because of the revolutionary mood and the revolutionary ideals. To ignore that is to tell a lie about ourselves. To say, as one of those essays did, that the, the Constitution uses the phrase property in men when it doesn't, when it explicitly there's a debate about it and a decision driven by James Madison and others to avoid using that phrase, to avoid giving the slave system that extra measure of legitimacy is to tell a lie about ourselves. So let's be truthful. Um, let's acknowledge the sins, and there are many, but let's let's not uh, forget um, how wonderful this country is. Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 parties of San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. Commonwealthclub.org. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. We got some uh, some questions that uh, are related to conservatism uh, and the Republican Party more generally, if that's okay. Um, we've got some, of course, Donald Trump questions, which we'll have to ask. Um, so, uh, and the, I have two questions actually. Basically, ask the same thing, which is um, when Donald Trump says, "I am a nationalist." What do you think about that? Do you think it's helpful to your cause uh, that he occasionally calls himself a nationalist? Yeah. So uh, this is the thing with Trump. So you get him on the teleprompter and the speech is written for him on these themes of nationalism. I, th I think it's good and unassailable. I think a speech he gave in Warsaw a couple years ago was the best speech of his presidency. And it was a frankly nationalist speech in making the central point, which is absolutely true and absolutely mu moving, that no one was able to destroy the Polish nation, although a lot of people tried for a very long time, because there's something really Polish about the Poles. And this is uh, the one thing that um, Rousseau, you know, the great philosopher and Trump have in common is this, this, uh, this insight, which Trump probably, he's probably forgotten it now. You know, he just, he read it when he was in Warsaw, but Rousseau said the same thing, you know, in the, in the 18th century, what, it, you know, Poland at that time was occupied entirely or partly occupied by the Russians and just said, don't give away your Polishness. Keep your language, keep your traditions, keep your folklore. And they, they'll never be able to absorb and 
fundamentally destroy you. And he was right. And Trump was making the same point, which is also correct. The problem is when Trump is, you know, out in nature acting on his own. And as I said, I believe a true and healthy nationalism should be um, have a unifying appeal. And obviously that does not come through um, with the president. Just a latest example, not the latest, but uh, a stark example two months ago or so in the Baltimore controversy where he tweeted out, you know, no human being would want to live in West Baltimore. Well, the fact is human beings do live in West Baltimore and they're not just human beings, they're Americans, right? And uh, this is just one of the major pitfalls of this, this president is the inability to distinguish properly between himself and the office. So this is a tweet that he's thinking, I'm the I'm uh, the host of Celebrity Apprentice. And this is just like fighting with Rosie O'Donnell. You know, <laughs> it's going to be a flame war on Twitter. And this is just not the way a, a president should should speak or, or act. Gotcha. And we have uh, two questions here also um, about the National Review. Um I'll just read one of them, but they both basically ask the same thing. Uh, in 2016, the National Review was critical of candidate Donald Trump. I believe it was, you know, there was a big, a big a title against Trump was the title. Um, and now they're supporting President Trump. And the sole Trump critic, David French, left the magazine last month. What changed? Why is the magazine currently supporting Trump? Okay, so in 2016, yeah, we tried our hardest to defeat Trump in the primaries. We thought there were 16 uh, better alternatives than Trump. Um, so we, we threw, you know, we are just a magazine. We're not a super PAC or a, a candidate. So we're a little hostage to broader circumstances, but we threw everything in our power uh, at him. This was before anyone actually voted in any caucus and primaries. He lost the Iowa caucus two weeks later. And you know, my theory of the case is that that would losing would kind of be just discrediting the way it usually is and kind of knock him down in New Hampshire it didn't knock him down in New Hampshire uh, at all, and the rest is history. So then, as a conservative, uh, for me at least, and I can't speak for all my colleagues, and it's not it's not true that David French is the only um, Trump critic uh, at National Review. Believe me, we can talk we can talk about this more in detail if you want afterwards. Um, but for me personally, the the substance on some things I really care about has been better than I expected. I'm uh, you know really. Um, uh, deep pro-lifer. Uh, he's been a rock on pro-life issues. He's been a rock on conscious rights. He's been a rock on judges. Uh, there have been a whole host of other things that he's been um, good on, which I never would have thought. You know, I thought he'd be completely up for grabs. I still think if Chuck Schumer had played it uh, differently or a little more shrewdly, he probably wouldn't have been a, a rock uh, on so many of these things. But he, he was partly pushed by the reaction against him uh, by the Democrats. But that's another um, story. So like 70, 80 percent of the substance I like. Then there's the, the conduct and the statements, which very often I'm appalled by. Um, and, you know, I might not hit every single controversy, but someone at National Review is or we are officially or we're discussing it on our uh, on our podcasts. Um, and then finally, so what's the alternative? You know, when, when you run the against Trump issue, there are lots of Republican alternatives. Now there's no plausible Republican alternative. You know, so um, it's, it's possible the alternative coming down the pike is Elizabeth Warren, you know, with a 50 trillion dollar uh, health care plan. And just I don't find that a very alluring. A lot of Republicans don't find that um, very what alluring. About Bloomberg? Well, I mean, he's not going to he's not going to um, win the 
Democratic nomination. He's probably not even going to run. Um, the, the party has uh, shifted um, quite far left. And you could get on by being like a libertarian or something, right? I mean, they have spots on the ballot. Um, Mike Bloomberg's many things, but he's not a libertarian. <laughs> Fair enough. I think besides besides a loyalty to the nation, we should also be uh, united by our uh, fondness and attachment to big fountain sodas. And uh, Mike Bloomberg threatened those in, in New York, and some of us will never forget. <laughs> never forget the big sodas. There is something in here that uh, that you wrote that I wanted to to talk to you about. There's a lot in here about um, about our English history and about the, the early settlers. Very interesting. But one of the things you, that you write in here um, uh, is is the following um, about sort of the Englishness of America. If the eastern seaboard had been settled by Spaniards, you could have left them alone for a very long time and marinated them in all the Enlightenment philosophers, and they still never would have come up with the American founding. And I'm just... is. Because I, would, I always assumed that the Enlightenment philosophy was sort of the thing that really helped our ancestors come up with the American founding. Why, why not? Why would the Spaniards not be able to come up with this? Well, I mean, Spain wasn't a stable democracy until the 1970s. Um, and the, one thing that I was struck by in doing reading and research for the book is sort of key elements – of our, our notion of liberty and what government is and, and should be were there among a, a certain set of um, British um, people who were opposed to the crown. They tended to be evangelicals and Puritans, you know, a hundred years earlier. You read John Milton and uh, you, you begin to see this idea of um, liberty. So a key element of what America became in the founding, it's not as though uh, all of a sudden, um, you know, people read Locke and sort of said, oh, okay, that's it. That there are these folk memories um, and tropes that were opposed to royal authority um, and in favor of independence um, and independent thinking from from the very beginning. And that was sort of the cultural um Soil. There, there's a. I, I think I, I quote someone. Um, I quote this thing in the book uh, with a historian at the time was talking to a, an old veteran of the Battle of Concord and said, "You know what? What were you doing? You know, had had you read uh, Locke and Montesquieu, and that's why you took up your musket?" And he's like, "No, we had always governed ourselves, and the redcoats meant that we weren't going to anymore, and that's why we fought them. And um, that that was just. It wasn't the entirety of it." You know, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams studied history. They studied philosophy. That's one reason, you know, we, we get this miraculous constitution. But this this cultural soil that that happens in is is also really important. And the fact that, you know, prior to 1776, we had had our own uh, democratic mechanisms of government, colonial assemblies and other things for 100 years. So it's my against my contention that there was a nation, American nation prior to 1776, or you wouldn't have had um, the revolution. Uh, and one of the questions, uh, I think the bigger question is, can democracy undermine its own nationalism? And one because one of the questions points out that in when in terms of like the EU, um, there was an election, people elected to join the EU. Um, 
does that is that still are these two things always on the same page? Can they actually uh, be at odds? Yeah, they, they can be at odds, and that's that's a great point. Um, the League of Nations, for instance, you know, it had to be ratified by the Senate. Um, so um, it it if it had been ratified, we would have decided to do it, but it would have had a mechanism in it um, compelling us to come to the defense of uh, other countries that would have impinged um, our sovereignty significantly. So what's what's the most important sovereign act? So I don't think there there can be a hard and fast rule uh, to these these things. But certainly in the case of of Britain, if there's a routine um, uh, aspect of of government that is out of your hands, then then I think you've you've lost something important and lost an important element of your sovereignty. Well, I, I'm, I have a friend who's uh, I have a friend in England uh, who uh, who tells me that that their vision, um, at least his vision, uh, was that that the EU would be like the U.S., right, that instead of, um, you know, Georgia, Alabama, you would have these various countries and that they were trying to, at least in his estimation, sort of emulate what we had. And so, uh, you know, it just seems like we're, we're talking about different levels of nationalism. And one of the questions um, is, you know, was the South in the Civil War more nationalistic or as nationalistic as the North? They just had it sort of uh, in a different configuration. Um, you know, sort of what do you make of that sort of traversing the level. Yeah, so that's a great question. So I, I think ma what makes the EU different is it's going to have to sort of dissolve these bonds of nationhood in Europe that have developed in uh, for centuries in these individual nations that speak different languages and have different histories and have different uh, cultures and different heroes and different founders. In the United States, obviously, uh, at the outset, you know, the colonies were sort of separate countries, right? You know, you read about George Washington mustering uh, his army uh, initially, and there's a lot of regional um, divisions. But um, uh, ultimately, um, it comes together at, and is like the, the most important national institution, um, the, the military, I would say even above Congress at that time. But even though there are a lot of differences, they spoke the same, same language, they um, had the same uh, background. And um, this is why Southern nationalism to me is uh, uh, bogus and spurious. It's because, and, you know, Lincoln addresses this in the first inaugural. There are no really natural geographic divisions. There are no divisions of language. There are no divisions of history or founders. The division is the institution of slavery. And it is um, entirely appropriate. There is a right to revolution, which is what, what the South was trying to do in a just cause. And this was the opposite of a just cause. This was a re revolution uh, entirely to protect um, chattel slavery from the, the fear of future encroachments by the national uh, government. So this was a, a swollen regionalism that was uh, trafficking um, in the idea that it, that it was a, a nation uh, when it when it wasn't. And it, the the real nationalist was was Lincoln, and he won. <laughs> and you know, in California, we get the um, the state of Jefferson that keeps trying to break away. There, there's this continual effort to break the state up into smaller states, and we've sort of got these um, you know separatist 
movements. We've got one in Vermont. I mean, they're sort of all over the place. I mean, we still seem to have some measure of this. But what you're saying is, is that because the, there's no sort of natural delineation, because we still share cultural bonds and, you know, historical linguistic, for example, that that's that's the thing that sort of keeps every everybody yeah, so, legitimately in. So I wouldn't nationalism doesn't have any, any, anything to say to how many um, states, you know, California could be broken up into. It does have something to say about whether California should be part of the union, which is yes. Although I, I do think if Trump wins a second term, there are going to be some people in California <laughs> who disagree with me. <laughs> There, there are already some who, who disagree with you. We are, we're going to have our own foreign policy, I think. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of doing our own thing. Well, one of the other questions from the audience um, was, what is the state of the Republican Party right now? And I think uh, I want to make sure to, to get this in before, um, before we end here. I'd love to just get your – there's a lot going on. Uh, every You just, ref, you know, hit the – Scroll your finger down on the news feed, and it's all a bunch of other new stuff that keeps to that seems to just keep coming and coming. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things happening every day, and yet, um, and yet we're still, to your point, there's only one real candidate for president from the Republican Party now. So, um, so talk about what your take is. Yeah. So the one of the strange things about Trump's election is that. Um, you know, usually this was represented a kind of revolution in the Republican Party. And usually when that happens, there's a movement that springs up in advance, you know, that makes some inroads, has victories and defeats and then takes over, you know, sort of the um, the, the, the victory of the, the new new left taking over the Democratic Party in the early 70s is kind of an example of this. The thing with Trump, there was none of that. And w one of the after effects is. The, the things that he's different on, um, you know, immigration, trade, wanting to do with infrastructure program and whatnot, almost all of it hasn't been thought through. So the, the stuff that he's been able to, to do, judges is a great example. It's not as though Trump is like identifying these great judges. Um, it's they're, they're all on a list for him because there is this movement for 30 or 40 years. We're going to develop this theory of originalism. We're going to grow these, uh, this talent beginning from law schools, and we're going to have it all on the shelf. So you've had this weird mixture where Trump um, was kind of a rejection of typical Republican policy orthodoxies in a lot of ways, but has governed in a very orthodox way because like all the, all the orthodoxy was on the shelf and ready to go. And Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell are like, let's do this. Um, the, the stuff like infrastructure has become a joke, right? There's infrastructure week every three or four months or so, and nothing comes of it because the Republicans on the Hill who are more orthodox don't want to do it. And then no one's, no one's thought through what, what the program, um, is. So I do think the Republican party, whatever happens to Trump is, should become more nationalistic and more populist, but an actual program around these things needs to be thought through and how it can be integrated with the kind of the broad disposition of the party. So one, I think that has to happen. Two, uh, I think it has to happen in part because the map is changing and, uh, you know, Texas isn't going to become blue anytime soon, but it's clear like Virginia and the Southwest are um, trending away from the Republican Party, which is not a new trend. It's just one that Trump's accelerated. But the inner suburbs uh, have been uh, trending away from Republicans, college-educated voters trending away from Republicans for a while. The trend has just gotten more stark. So the party is going to have to be able to compete routinely, not just as you know, a wild one-off in these so-called blue wall states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, 
and Minnesota. And the appeal to those states uh, and that region is going to be different than what we um, grew up, you know, considering kind of Sunbelt uh, Republicanism. And then the final point, I think a, a more nationalist populist Republican Party has more potential to jump racial lines than a conventional stereotypical Mitt Romney Republicanism. I think there's a class of uh, black and Latino voters, especially middle working class males who can find a version of what Trump is getting at or trying to do um, appealing. Now, for Trump to do it himself would be really hard. He'd have to get out of out of his own way. He'd have to be much more disciplined. He'd have to really work it. Um, but I, I think a Republican Party that has has some genuine working class appeal, we always when we say working class, we always say working class whites, but there are a lot of other working class people in, in this country, and they possibly could be attracted to that message too. But all this needs to be figured out. It's something we try to do in our, our pages, um, but uh, it's, this, this is not an environment conducive to thought. <laughs> That's depressing. Well, are you concerned at all about about the losses in this recent election and then in the midterms as well? That that uh, and, w- and we keep seeing polls and and data that show that in in important states based on the electoral college that that the president is still doing okay, if not well. Um, and yet, when the elections are actually happening, um, you know, in, in between, we're seeing big losses. Yeah, so this is a, a trend the suburbs have, have, have gone against Trump. And what happened in 2016 is he wasn't a natural suburban candidate, but he, um, against running against Hillary, um, one, and two, right at the end, there was just kind of a snapback among traditional Republican voters in the suburbs. I experienced this personally because my mom is quite elderly now, lives in uh, a suburban um, area in Virginia. And about three weeks, she votes early, three weeks before the election. She's, Richie, you know, who should I vote for? You know, I, I hate Hillary, but I'm not going to vote for Trump. So who should I vote for? And uh, I didn't urge her to do this. She was just asking me. So I look it up and I was like, oh, this guy, Evan McMullen. You know, remember him? He's the independent candidate. He's, he's running in Virginia. You can vote for Evan McMullen, mom. He's OK. She goes and votes for Evan McMullen. And then like three days before the election, she calls me. He's like, Richie, who's that idiot you had me vote for? I want to vote for Trump. And like <laughs> and this this had happened. This happened among like a key increment of suburban voters, whatever it is, they wanted to come home. Um, so Trump needs that to happen again in 2020, at the same time, he gets his his base out again, probably in, in bigger numbers. So what we're looking at, it's it's really uh, unprecedented for an incumbent president to have a plausible path to reelection that does not plausibly involve winning the popular vote. He's not winning the popular vote. Like I was talking about this friends earlier. Every voter who stayed home in California and New York is coming out no matter what. I mean, it's going to be like a six million popular vote loss. But the thing is, he he still does have a path in those uh, upper Midwest states we we're just discussing that could get him the electoral vote majority. Even with the impeachment proceedings and, and all this cloud? Yeah. I mean, the, the remarkable thing about the impeachment proceeding is there like last week, there's an NBC Wall Street Journal poll that showed 49 percent uh, support for impeaching and removing Donald Trump and 46% opposition. Why do these numbers sound familiar, right? 49% is what Hillary Clinton got in 2016. 46% was what Donald Trump got in 2016. So I know we're consumed, like, every day things are happening, but, like, in the broader scheme, nothing's happened. Nothing has happened. We're dug in in exactly the same place. He's going to get impeached in the House. He's going to get acquitted in the Senate unless there's some earth-shattering development. 
And I just kind of think two weeks later, it's going to feel like impeachment happened a decade ago. You know, there's going to be 10 new outrages, you know, <laughs> and that distracting us. And we're just going to sort of go on as before. Wow. Um, I have, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I have two more questions for you. I'll, I'll start with this one. Um, there are, uh, sorry, I keep, keep sort of pinging back and forth to the, from the book to the sort of now, but um, I want to make sure I get as many of your questions in as, as I can. Um, this is a, I have a couple questions here about language. So sorry to, I'm going to downshift a bit to this. Um, about the importance of it and, and you know, whether whether it is central. One person writes, how do you explain the nationalism exhibited by the Swiss who have four languages? And the other says, um, nationalist movements in the mid-19th century in Europe were driven by populations with common languages, German, Italian, Hungarian, etc. Is nationalism in the USA necessarily an English-speaking concept? So I know it's sort of in the same neighborhood, but if you could... Uh, Talk yeah, so that. the Swiss are the exception that proves proves the rule. I grant you the Swiss, um, and <laughs> I, I, I just I, I think you know there's a tendency to think well language oh that's so exclusive, but it's not. People can learn English. You know, people all over the world um, learn English. Immigrants throughout our history have come here and learned uh, English, and I just think it's good for them because um, it betokens a full integration into the country. And it's good for us because it um, promotes um, social and national uh, cohesion. So, again, I think this is this is at the molten core of um, the cultural um, nation. And if we're ever going to become some a bilingual society, it would speak of um, deep, deep divisions that would be that would be unhealthy. Um. One of the things you you write about in the book, and it's one of it's it was such a it was such a great word because it's one of those words that I didn't know I was looking for, but when I when I read it, I thought that makes a lot of sense. Um, and the word is uh, gratitude, and and about how that plays in to nationalism, and about how if you know depending on how you're feeling, you know gratitude for the nation that you have. You know, you can. It's easier to translate into nationalism, and that and that the opposite, you know, may be true. So, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was such a it was such an important concept. Yeah, thank you. Yes. So, none of us did anything to be born here. No one, right? And it's it's one of the the great blessings in world history. To no matter what you think of Trump, no matter you know how distracted and um, irritated you you are by social media or whatever else. It is just a incredible bounty and boon to, to everyone to be living in the 21st century United States of America that none of us uh, did anything to significant build throughout our history. Um, none of us wrote the Constitution. None of us signed the Declaration. None of us won um, the, the Civil War. Very few of us, maybe some of us in, in this room, marched uh, uh, with Martin Luther King or, or in civil rights demonstrations. So all that is bequeathed to us, to unearned. It's like, uh, to put it in religious, you know, Christian term, just it's the equivalent of unearned grace. And the only appropriate way to react, in, in my mind, uh, is just almost boundless gratitude. It doesn't mean we can't be critical of our, our country and things that happen here that, that are wrong, um, but it means that we need to realize just what an incredible blessing it is. And all those those criticisms we might make need to be in the spirit of making it better 
and um, bequeathing it in turn to a next generation that hopefully will be equally grateful. Um, we have Tom, I think, for one more question. Um, so, and this sort of ties into that. Uh, this is the last audience question. Um, given the negative applications in recent history, how do we avoid the abuse of nationalism as, as a concept? Well, first of all, I think American nationalism is different. Um, liberty and individual rights are built into our national identity. As I referred earlier, the Constitution is the sheet anchor of our uh, sovereignty, is the source of national sovereignty in this country, a miraculous document that gives us a strong and capable national government, which we needed if we were going to survive, but also gives us a, a limited um, government, which we need if we're going to preserve our uh, liberty. So I, I think our, our nationalism is different and just more naturally benign than that in, in other places in the world. And um, we just need to realize, you know, white nationalism is a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as a white nation. Uh, this country's culture has all sorts of influences, in, including incredibly important influences um, from African Americans, and nationalism is part of what will keep us together and keep this country great. All right. So great. So uh, our thanks now to Rich Lowry, um, editor of the National Review and author of the new book, The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United and Free. We also want to thank our audience members, of course, here in San Francisco and also online for joining us today. And as a reminder, copies of the book are for sale and he will sign them outside the room following the program. I'm Melissa Kane, and now this Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. <laughs>